Hello and welcome to another episode of What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me this week are Sharon Kamathi, Editor at Fintech Futures. Hey guys. And Stephanie Brennan, CEO investment firm Evervest. Hi, how are you? As in the last few episodes, we are recording this show separately while in lockdown, transmitting from our respective homes and staying safe. We're chatting with Steph about innovations and investment this week. But right now, we're going to dive into some news from the past week in numbers. Uh, we've all arrived today with some big number-led stories to talk about. Steph, as our guest this week, perhaps you'd like to kick things off. And I just realized I forgot to say, uh, I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, but, <laughs> but to kick, kick things off with your, with your first story. Awesome. I think it's a force of habit now for me to, to just jump in with how are you straight away. Um, so good to hear that you're keeping well and safe and uh, to jump straight in with the news article. It's been a, a pretty interesting week in the news um, and also with Revolut launching uh, their bank officially now in Lithuania to service their 300,000 customers. So to give you a bit of a background on this news story, um, Revolut originally got their banking license back in December of 2018. Um, and there is speculation that they're looking at a UK banking license as well. I think we can all agree that Revolut has done a great job in terms of expanding internationally and, and capturing a lot of the mass market and certainly um, in these underserved markets like Lithuania where people sort of don't really have so much access to to um, new style online banks like what Revolut are offering. So um, there's about an 11% market share that Revolut now has in Lithuania, which is pretty impressive. Um, and certainly as well with sort of, I, I guess, the um, movement between the EU, it also does serve a really great purpose to be able to not only convert funds, but also be able to use the one bank as you're traveling around the European Union and, and broadly the world. So it's quite a good story as well for, for Lithuania. Obviously, we've been in Lithuania for the last few years getting our license as well. So I, I guess it does speak volumes to Lithuania becoming a, a fintech hub. Um, they're now ranked number four in the world behind uh, the US, UK and Singapore. So it's a pretty impressive feat and speaks volumes to the, the quality of companies like Revolut that are um, obviously positioning themselves in, in Lithuania. That's such an excellent point because Lithuania definitely is seeing quite a lot of growth in the fintech space. So I will evade the latest staff-related matter seen in Revolut as lots of senior employees have since left the firm over the past month. Uh, I know that's light shade and I'll sip my tea slowly there, but I'll focus on the developments in Lithuania indeed. And there was quite a, a lot that happened last year. In fact, the number of fintechs increased by 24% to 210 fintechs and the number of jobs as well in the sector increased by over 30 percent to 3,400. Plus we're seeing lots of reforms happening um, with an introduction of a new sandbox and also the Bank of Lithuania is planning to create an innovative fast response risk assessment framework uh, so that way it can give uh, some real-time insights on bank-based supervision how about you, Alex? What have you seen and what catches your eye with this story? Well, I think the, the, the thing that uh, that always gets me about this is that it's that Revolut side of things where uh, the firm, from my perspective, has done really well in, I, I think people already think that Revolut is a, is a bank. It's always already always named as a challenger. And I think it, it people speak about it in the same breath as real challenger banks with licenses. And it's an interesting angle for me that, you know, we're having now that it's 
coming to the point where it's getting itself an actual banking license and moving people across from um, the wallet to creating actual insured accounts. It's just an interesting one for me that uh, it's a firm that has for a long time been spoken of in the same breath as your Monzo, Starlings, uh, Metro, uh, but hasn't actually been a bank. Um, It's been more of a payments platform with uh, with uh, ambitions to be a bank, and it'd be interesting to see if Revolut um, changes its strategy at all when it, it when it becomes a Revolut bank as opposed to Revolut the fintech. But it's I think it's something to watch out for. Yeah, and we even saw recently. I think today we published a new story that was talking about its like acquisition plans and it's looking at um, struggling travel firms. So it, it does look like it wants to expand, be more of a brand although with the struggling travel firms it makes me think that it does want to keep within a certain niche a certain fintech based uh, space instead of like proper banking banking because loads of banks don't really partner with your like booking.coms or you know your expedias so it's, it's an interesting move uh, I, I don't know what it, what its plans are but yeah it seems like it's it's trying to do different things to keep itself relevant from one company that does payments to to a payment story, which is uh, my my news and numbers. Uh, it's a fairly small number. Uh, my last one was six hundred million, but uh, this one is just six. Uh, six is uh, is the number of months that UK's Financial Conduct Authority has extended the deadline for strong customer authentication, or SCA. Um, the implementation of it in the UK that is uh, due to complications surrounding the coronavirus pandemic. So. SCA for those listening who need a refresh, it's a requirement under the Second Payment Services Directive or PSD2, requires that electronic payments are performed with multi-factor authentication uh, to increase the security of electronic payments. Multi-factor authentication is usually already done with your cards when you do chip and pin, uh, but this is introducing more authentication methods for online and contactless payments. Uh, This is an extension mandated by one national authority, the FCA, uh, but there is growing pressure on the uh, the EU, the European Commission, and the European Banking Authority to announce their own blanket delay and push things as well to to 2021. So the the, orig- the SCA has a history of delays. I mean, the, the current one is now September 2021 in the UK, but uh, way back in 2019, SCA was meant to come in in September, but it had its de- uh, deadline pushed back to December 2020 due to a lack of readiness in the industry across Europe. Uh, and some authorities like the FCA decided on an even more flexible deadline and made it March 2021, which has now been pushed to to September 2021. Uh, there's another, another number in this story as well, actually, and that's 70%, which is apparently uh, the amount of payments processed over the internet or via contactless cards right now that are not compliant with PSD2 uh, or SCA. So that's that's despite the measures being delayed for more than a year and people having time to to get their, their act in order. And I understand, then the FCA has said, and I understand that coronavirus and its complications have made life extremely hard for merchants and, and e-commerce operators, uh, but the and the, having an onrushing deadline would only make things harder for them. But for me, SCA, it's something I've been talking about for two and a half years now. It feels like one of those pieces of legislation that's going to be delayed in perpetuity. And uh, I don't doubt that whatever state the industry is in come summer 2021, we'll still be hearing about firms that have yet to comply with the standards, how they're unready, how there isn't enough time and how there needs to be another delay. It just seems like one of those pieces that, that, of legislation that just will never make it, never get the green light. Yeah, and the pressure is certainly growing on 
the European Banking Authority to actually delay it, like, you know, Europe-wide. Uh, we've seen the Payments Europe, they re recently um, joined in the calls to actually delay it um, by publishing a paper, and they even mentioned the fact that the UK's FCA has pushed the deadline back to September. Um, they called for more of a harmonized approach, which is kind of funny because then it's talking about one country doing a completely different thing, <laughs> but at the same time calling for harmonization. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that sort of merges together, especially with Brexit in the works, because then like in the future, it'll just be like, well, that's just the UK doing its thing. Um, if it's going to delay, at least we know that we're going to, that they're going to eventually implement it, but they can actually delay it. So it's going to be kind of like a, an interesting discussion and a debate as to who will actually decide like individually which country to drop out and follow the FCA and just delay it. Um, and who's actually going to you know stick with the EBA because they haven't really released anything or any indications that they want to delay it further. Um, so yeah, it's going to be an interesting space to, to check out in the future. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting side story to this is, is like you mentioned i think that it's intriguing to see the uk put a, a big signpost out there saying we're going to delay it because of the feedback we've had from the market in our country uh, and moving before the eba has done anything and i think that's definitely something to watch out for in the future as as you said with brexit coming up how uk regulators start operating independently you might say from their european counterparts uh but uh, we do. I think Sharon, your your story for this week is also uh, six. Uh, we're lowballing it. Yeah, it seems like we both settled on six. Um, yeah, it's a fun number. Um, so for me, it's six, which is the six months it took for RBS or NatWest, as it's called these days, uh, to announce that it's shutting down its digital banking brand Bow uh, since it launched in November last year. So in a statement. The bank said that it had taken the decision to wind down Bow and was therefore closing all customer accounts and would give customers 60 days to move funds elsewhere before accounts were closed. It had just over 11,000 customers um, and it had some similar features to other challenges like Monzo and Sterling with real-time transaction alerts and the piggy bank features, uh, setting aside savings and no transaction fees when used abroad. Um, which is like standard stuff. Um, and the RBS chief executive, Alison Rose, told journalists that Bo hasn't failed. So this is not a failure. It's just a decision that was made to merge it with Metal, which is NetWest's digital business bank. Um, it looks like quite a lot of banks moving into the whole SME digital bank space. Um, so the news also came after RBS published its first quarterly report on the 1st of May. And it revealed that it had a pre-tax profit, which fell to 519 million, which is down from just over 1 billion the same time last year. Now, Bo faced quite a couple of hurdles. Um, so it had some tech flaws and bad user reviews, and it even had its own uh, fair share of office politics. I, for one, mentioned, though, that um, a flaw that comes right at the early stages is to do with your name. I mean, it was virtually impossible to search for Bo and find it immediately. From a journalist perspective, and I also guess from a prospective customer, it is an absolute nightmare to search for something, and it just doesn't come up immediately. Um, also, its chief executive, Mark Bailey, left the bank in January, and then its chief product officer, Ollie Perdue, left in April. Um, 
It also had issues with having to reissue 6,000 debit cards earlier this year in order to just comply with new EU regulations. So yeah, it had quite a, a lot sort of going against it. But we've also seen incumbents trying to stay relevant in this new digital first type of banking. We've seen Goldman Sachs launch Marcus um, and JP Morgan, although it did sort of shut down Finn. It's now coming up with a new venture in the UK. We don't know its name yet. Um, but we've also seen some challenges in the US shut down too. So just in April, we've seen Movin shut down. Um, and around October last year, we saw Denizen close too. So do you guys think this will be a trend? Is this the beginning of the race for survival? Definitely. I mean, if I can jump in on that point, I, I think it really does sort of, you know, um, paint a, a pretty good picture of, of what we've already been seeing in the in the market and in the space is that, you know, traditional companies are becoming less and less re relevant. Um, banks collectively internationally have spent about a billion um, or trillion rather dollars on, uh, you know, digital innovation. And it's not actually netting them any sort of increase in revenue, aside from the fact that it's enabling them to reduce their human capital costs. So, you know, we are sort of seeing as well fintechs and, and digital banks play more and more of a role in society. I mean, fintechs are the fastest growing segment in the market in the UK. Um, and if you put a side-by-side -side comparison of, of let's say, um, you know, NatWest, which is obviously one of the, the companies um, owned by RBS or one of the banks, um, if you put a side-by-side -side comparison between Revolut, I mean, Revolut was started, what, about four or five years ago, and they have about 10 million customers. So RBS as a whole has about 19 million, and they were started in 1727. So, you know, when they started as well, NatWest, I mean, that was started in 1968. So it really does bring that question of, you know, fintechs have done more in four or five years than what banks have done in more than 50. And having a digital product is really not enough to move customers. It it's also comes down to sort of what that, that product actually stands for and the, and the real pain point that it's trying to solve. And companies and, and fintechs like Revolut, you know, they are started by younger um, founders that really understand their, their target demographic a lot more because they are from that same demographic. So it's, it's not enough just to build a digital product. It's about making sure that you're actually meeting a pain point and you stand for something more than just a good um, IT service. Yeah, exactly. And I think the whole situation for me reminds me of that um, that quote from the, the American poet about the Vietnam War, which was, what if, what if they gave a war and nobody came? Well, this is like, what if you made a bank and nobody came? And that's pretty much the, the story for a lot of these incumbent made um, banks. But I, I wonder if for me, uh, obviously, Alison Rose said it. It, it, it wasn't a uh, it wasn't a failure, and I think I wonder in what respect it wasn't a failure because you know some lessons were learned in standing up new technology, moving things on cloud first systems, uh, operating in that sort of agile space, um, I, I, and you see this a lot with with banks, um, larger banks launching faster, smaller ones to test these things out, but the, I think the rub comes down to. Um, it's it's a very expensive way to test things out. It seems expensive in both money, expensive in your brand as well. Because if you throw if you if you throw a, a new fast cool bank and you go out there and say, hey, this is going to be a, a challenger, challenger, 
and we're going to have 5 million customers in five years and then it shuts down after six months. There's no way you don't take a hit from that in terms of your credibility. Um, and so I, I think if these are, you know, if, if these, these experiments are experiments, then they need to be some concrete results in the next few years. Otherwise, it's really is gonna, the banks are really going to have a reputation of just not coming anywhere close to the, their digital competition. We now head into the main section of the podcast where we drill down into a specific topic in the industry. Uh, We're going to be talking with Steph about the innovations happening in the investment space, which I'm sure has been digitizing at pace and is facing its own unique challenges considering the state of things right now. Uh, But since we have her in the hot seat, I thought we could kick off with this. So Evervest has offices in Lithuania, uh, Australia and the UK. Uh, so perhaps it would be beneficial, Steph, if you could actually first take us through uh, the Evervest product and then when we might actually see it launching in the UK properly. Yeah, sure. So uh, we we started actually originally in, in 2018 in January in Australia, which is where I'm from. You probably probably picked up from the accent already or the, or the listeners have. Um, and so we, as a, a startup, you know, it's all about looking at where is the best place to deploy deploy capital that gives you the greatest return on investment. So we started as a free investment education blog and then um, transitioned into offering a self-directed investment platform. Um, So the idea is effectively to unite the world's stock exchanges in the one simple app and then make them accessible to investors across the globe. So part of that was looking at where the best place to get licensed was that gives us the greatest return on investment and access to to more markets. So that's how we, we landed upon Lithuania and I've lived there for for the last two years building the the business and um, we've now actually brought forward our timeline to launch in the UK. Um, So obviously with with Brexit, we need another license. So we have moved forward um, on that and we we are pretty excited that we're nearing um, our license approval date, which is looking to be um, before the first half of June. So soon after that, we will start to um, roll out in our post license phase testing. Um, and then from there to our singles investors, our wait list of over 30,000 now that we have internationally. And then from there, we'll open up to um, the general public. So pretty exciting time for us. Oh, that's really cool. Um, we're definitely looking forward to seeing some more investment apps in the UK. And speaking of these investments and investment tech, um, I was wondering what are the latest trends and developments in investment tech? And has the coronavirus crisis changed the trajectory at all? So I think to to touch on the second part of the question first, uh, you know, coronavirus, in my opinion, has just accelerated what we were already seeing um, as changing in the space. So we are seeing a lot more young investors becoming interested in the capital markets. And off the back of that as well, we are also seeing a greater interest in um, being able to invest in, in stocks and not just sort of index tracking funds and also having that sort of control over what you're you're buying. So we have actually seen, and certainly amongst our competitors, we've seen a lot more interest in light of coronavirus because there's, I, I guess, a lot more sort of um, popularity and, and topical sort of conversations around what's happening currently in the capital markets with the volatility. So we are seeing, and certainly our competitors are seeing a, a huge increase in 
um, the amount of brokerage accounts that are being opened as, as people are more aware of sort of these great companies that are listed on the public markets that they can now um, invest in at, at much uh, cheaper prices comparatively to pre-coronavirus. Wow, that's, that's interesting to, to know. And in terms of the trends in developments, uh, what do you see happening in the investment tech space? Uh, so in terms of uh, the, the developments, I mean, we, we are seeing a lot more sort of, I guess, tech dependency. Um, typically, you know, a, a lot of traditional brokers, they, they sort of lack, I guess, in terms of the, the technology that they use and the sort of the, the seamless approach. I mean, even if you look at sort of the comparison between how fintechs do KYC as opposed to more traditional institutions, um, also as well, I guess, you know, a lot of fintechs, we are focusing on consumers that are digitally fluent. So that has also forced a, more of a change in sort of how we position apps and, and sort of what the features and functionalities um, look like and, and how seamless they are from a, a tech perspective. Um, also as well, that's, you know, really um, changed, I guess, the, the time frame in which consumers want to wait to be able to open a brokerage account. So we're seeing, you know, KYC process take a lot uh, shorter time frame so that people do have more instantaneous access. So all of these things are, are really changing and it's, it's very much sort of a um, I guess a roll-on effect. You have consumer trends that start to change. Um, that, of course, changes the the competitive landscape. Now you've got regulations that are starting to change, like the fintech agenda by the EU, which is really trying to unify regulatory frameworks. Off the back of that, that again increases competition, which then changes the landscape even further, and of course feeds back into those consumer demands that continue to change. So we do think that coronavirus will have uh, an impact, and certainly we're seeing. Um, even greater interest in the capital markets, which I think is really a, a step in the right direction of where the industry has already been been heading with you know the, the popularization of, of uh, sort of challenge banks and now commission free trading platforms. And of course, you know the, the consumer change on more cost consciousness for younger generations and, and really that being the deciding factor between products. And speaking of these developments in capital markets, what products do you see a lot of investment in? Is there a run towards more long-term investments in bonds rather than equities? So we have typically in, in other financial crisis, crises, you have seen you know, a shift between uh, direct stock investing to, to the bond market. Um, but it's quite interesting that we, we have seen also a, a very big drop in, in the bond market and in certain parts of the world, there's a lack of sort of liquidity in the market. So um, liquidity for people that aren't too familiar is sort of, I guess, how many people are sort of trading and, and buying and selling those different stocks. So different stocks and sort of segments of the market market go through different timeframes of being more liquid than others. So what we're seeing now with, with bonds is there is in certain parts of the world limited liquidity. And that really comes down to what these bond products um, are, I guess, offering in terms of the underlying investment. So with a bond, effectively, you're lending money either to a company or to a government. So, you know, you do have uh, governments that are obviously um, having to provide a lot of financial support to their citizens during this time. And then also from a company perspective, you've got a lot of companies that are impacted, like airline companies, for example. So if you're going to lend money, hoping that they will repay, which effectively is what a bond is, it's like a loan to the company, then, you know, you, you have to sort of understand that 
um, certain industries are heavily impacted and so is their liquidity. Um, so obviously with airlines, it's an example, you don't have people traveling, so you don't have the revenue. And of course, that impacts the financials, impacts the stock price and it impacts their ability to repay. So similar to banks as well, you know, there's a, a lot of bonds in sort of the financial sector and obviously banks giving deferrals to, to landlords. Um, this does really impact not only their T1 capital ratios, but it also impacts their liquidity as a bank um, because they're relying on that sort of income. So these are things that have really impacted the, the safe haven assets, of, as we call them, which are typically bonds and, and real estate. Uh, and you mentioned airline stocks dropping due to the coronavirus. So what are the top five companies' stock prices you see performing well despite the crisis? Are there any at all? So the top five companies um, is, I guess, a little bit sort of subjective on, on what your investment interests are. Um, personally, I'm very much a big believer in, in technology and sort of it being, I guess, the future of um, of not only sort of industries, but also sort of more internally um, sort of the work dependencies of, of different companies. So I'm heavily focused on technology stocks and, and also medical companies, um, both of which have been quite interesting during this time with obviously a lot of government seeking for, for a vaccine. So as an example, and of course, this isn't a, a recommendation to go and buy them, but um, I'm invested <laughs> in, in companies like, you know, Abbott Laboratories, um, Intuitive Surgical, uh, Atlassian, um, MasterCard, Visa, obviously, there's a lot of um, e-commerce uh, companies that are doing really well. So by default, so will um, Ma MasterCard and Visa, or that's certainly the, the expectation. So there's sort of some of the, the companies, but I think more broadly, it's about looking at what are some of the companies that you think will still um, be here, you know, tomorrow and not just today. Um, Netflix is another one that I'm I'm invested in, as is Spotify. Um, obviously, with the demand for podcasts, there's there's a lot of interest, and in, and with Netflix, you know, there's a lot of media that's come out that uh, they've actually had to downgrade their quality because of the demand. So this obviously then feeds into if there's increased demand, there's um, likely to be increased revenue, which in turn is likely to increase their stock price. Nice. I didn't even think or factor in that you know having sort of subpar. Um, movies or series on Netflix might end up you know having an effect on, on its stock prices like if we all didn't like Tiger King would it shares massively drop <laughs> like without Carol Baskins getting slated every two seconds like where would we see it I don't know um, but there's my pop culture reference I know we all we all love them um, and speaking of stocks and you know having great days in inequity uh, robin hood recently had an outage amid one of the so-called best trading days of the year and its users ended up you know looking at a legal dispute after the event so what do you think about that do you think that robin hood perhaps should have you know ensured some safeguards to ensure its customers are well served well, I mean, I, I think um, the first thing I could say is I'm, I'm glad it was them and not us. <laughs> see, that's what I like to see. I really wanted to hear that from, from Gemini talking about Facebook Libra, but yes, yes, go on. But I mean, you know, I think I think this is really a hard one. I mean, as a, as a consumer um, and as an investor myself in the, in the capital markets, you know, 
I, as a consumer, want to be able to depend on the product that I'm using. And, you know, I think, you know, fintechs have, have really strengthened their role in comparison to traditional players, not just from sort of their ease of use and cost, of, cost efficiency, but there's also that secondary layer of, of the trust element and making sure that you can actually rely on, on a product and it is dependable, particularly, I mean, when there is, you know, one of the best days in, in trading. I mean, mm. I, I think conversely, it's probably better that it was one of the best and not one of the worst um, because that leads <laughs> to, to even more problems. But, you know, from, a, from another sort of player in this space, there is a lot more complexity that goes into building a, a, a trading application. Um, and certainly as well, even if you're partnering with other brokerage firms, there is a, a very big gap in terms of the sort of fintech type technology and user experience as opposed to the traditional players so that can in itself you know cause hurdles cause issues um, obviously we can only go off what we read in the media of, of what's actually happened but there is a lot more complexity and and it's kind of finding that balance between making sure that this product is dependable and actually really trying to drive and change this space which is really behind where it needs to be and i think more generally um, Robinhood has done a really great job in, in democratising the industry, um, but it would be good to obviously from a consumer perspective make sure that not only themselves and ourselves and, and other players are having that sort of dependency that we see with traditional players like, like banks. So do you think regulators will try and make an example out of Robinhood and what sort of consequences will it bring for other investment and trading apps such as yourself? I definitely think with any of these these issues, um, definitely regulators do take notice and, you know, they really are trying to drive more protection for, for consumers um, and investors and particularly retail investors. So I think they definitely will take notice and, and, and they should. Um, and they should also place, you know, even more scrutiny on new players coming into the market. I mean, there are from going through two licensing processes now in, in two relatively different jurisdictions, there's a lot of sort of um, regulation, there's a lot of, you know, protections and scrutiny in place already. And I think as we sort of take more of a, a bigger role, um, there are more protections and, and more oversight that the regulators will need to have to make sure that, you know, that dependency and, and trust is there, not just amongst the early adopters, which are, you know, broadly younger people, more digitally fluent and more trusting of new players, but also that next step of when companies like ourselves want to be able to attract the mass market, the less digitally fluent, the people that are more comfortable um, with using products that they've used for the last 20, 30, 40 years. So I definitely think that this will, will bring more oversight um, and it really should. So we have arrived at the final portion of the show and the section you may have been waiting for, the fintech jail. This is where our guest submits a buzzword, a trend, a technology, even a company that irks them and then argues why they need to be put away in the fintech jail for good. Uh, Sharon and I will then debate whether it deserves a place in the jail and lock it away if it does. Uh, so Steph, what do you think needs to be locked away this week? 
definitely the phrase gamification or the word rather. I think we're, we're hearing this buzzword so much and, and fintech companies are, are all about, um, you know, gamification. And there's, there's two parts. I mean, for, from my perspective, it sounds like we're making something game and particularly in the, in the investing space, you know, investing is not a game. Obviously, we want to make it engaging and simple. But, you know, I think gamification kind of, is a little bit misleading because if you look at gamification frameworks, they're actually about social influence and they're influencing behavioural decisions. So I think we're sort of misleading um, customers and consumers and and really the um, players in this space, saying that we're you know we're building a gamification framework to to make it more engaging like a game. When really it's about influencing behaviours and decisions and maybe a little bit more sort of transparency of, of how we want to actually build out different user experiences to be engaging. Yeah, I mean, uh, for me, it's, it's a fairly simple one for me. That's a definite yes. That's going straight to <laughs> for me. This is good. I'm, I'm right on your side there. Uh, I, I find it, uh, I find the term itself irritating. Um, uh, and as someone who's played video games their entire life, it's, it's a strange thing to see people think that, having a flashy app or a little emoji makes things, you know, cool and, and game-like. And um, I think there is a danger, like you said, Steph, of people infantilizing very serious financial subjects uh, by overcooking things and making them too uh, flashy and neon and attractive. Um, and yeah, for, for me, that it's, it's, it, there's no debate on, <laughs> from my side on this one. I, I'm fully on your side. Yeah, I completely agree, to be honest. Um, for me, gamification is getting life imprisonment and no parole because this is not a term that should be used in this industry at all. I mean, if anything, when you do use it, you're just baiting out that all you want to do is just use your users in a pretty in like insidious or bizarre way. Like, it just doesn't feel like it should be used in a positive light either. Like, oh, I'm I'm gamifying your data. <laughs> Do you know that customer? That's what I'm doing. It just seems a bit misleading and, and bizarre to use it um, in this space. So yes, for me, it's 100% going in jail, not seeing the light of day. Perhaps the most resounding result we've had so far. Uh, life imprisonment. We've, we've had some buzzwords that have gone out on parole, but this one's getting no chance. Nah. <laughs> Straight into solitary confinement. Excellent. Well, that's all we have time for this episode of What the Fintech. Uh, thanks very much to Sharon. Thank you for having me, as always. And to Steph. Thanks for having me. Uh, for joining me. Um, before we sign off for the week, though, uh, we're going to plug s- socials, things like that. Um, Steph, you're the guest. So uh, wh- what would you like to plug? Well, keeping on the, the sort of educational theme and, and COVID that we spoke about, um, if anyone's wanting to sort of understand a little bit more about the impacts of coronavirus on the market and, and what's going on in this in this crazy world at the moment, um, then head on over to our website, evvest.com. If you sign up to the waitlist, there's a little bit of a plug there. Um, you will get access to our newsletter, so you'll be able to understand a little bit more about the markets and its impact on you and, and your portfolio. Awesome. Uh, Sharon, where, where can we find you online? You can find me at Fintech Kits. That's K-I-T-S. 
Um, and I've also got a paper coming out on compliance and crypto on the Oxford Political Review. Um, and a longer version of that, which is a little bit more in like detail, is going to be coming out in the Compliance Alliance's journal. I think it's their spring 2021. So when that comes out, you see my name in there. Um, you can share it or, or don't share it. Just keep it to yourself. Um, or comment on it, say how much you love it or how much you hate it. I'm happy either way. Wow, amazing. And mine's just a bog standard Twitter plug. You can, you can find me on Twitter at, at adhamilton91 uh, and on LinkedIn just by searching my name. Uh, as for FinTech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com on Twitter at, at @fintechfutures, and on LinkedIn by searching for FinTech Futures and looking for our lovely uh, logo. Uh, if you like this podcast and our other episodes of What the Fintech, then please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service, whatever it may be. Uh, we'd also really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find our podcast by writing a review or recommending us to a friend. Um, as always, thank you very much for our support, and we will see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, goodbye. <laughs>